Well, we're in week number two of a series that we started called Dear Church, and what we're doing is taking a look at these seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches, and if you want to follow along this morning, if you have a printed Bible or a Bible on your phone, here in just a little bit, we're going to find ourselves in Revelation chapter two, and so if you have a printed Bible, or like I say, if you've downloaded on your phone, that's where we're headed this morning. If you haven't had a chance to be with us last week, then you have a chance to catch up online or listen to the podcast. Last week we talked about this John is 80 some odd years old. This is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the guy that wrote Gospel of John, one of Jesus's disciples, one of Jesus's closest friends. He was the guy that as Jesus was getting ready to die, uh, Jesus looked at John and said, John, I want you to take care of my mother after I'm gone. He looked at his mother Mary and said, hey, I want you to take care of John. John had this deep, deep connection with Jesus, and 60 years after Jesus's crucifixion, John has been exiled to the island of Patmos. People that wouldn't bow down to the government of Rome were sent there if they weren't killed. John, for whatever reason, was spared execution, but he was exiled to this island, and on this island, he has these extraordinary, extraordinary visions. He wrote these down, and the beauty of uh, preserving them through antiquity is we have them today. And so John writes these letters to this seven churches, and we're taking a look at these seven letters that Jesus wrote through John and asking the question, what does that mean for us today? Why has this been preserved for us? How can we learn and how can we grow? Revelation just means, I don't know if you're familiar with Revelation or not, it can be a really strange book with visions and weird creatures, and it can be something that you, you kind of veer away from because it's just so bizarre. It's impossible in some ways to understand, but Revelation just means to reveal. It just means to pull back the curtain on something that was previously hidden or undiscovered. And so that's what John is trying to write for us. He's writing in this apocryphal language. Apocalypse is just the word that we translate into revelation. And so it's just this revealing, this pulling back. It's trying to help us to understand who Jesus is and what's coming and how do we live in light of what is coming. And last week we looked at the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus and Jesus says, you are doing such a good job. Things are going well. You've got all this wonderful activity. What I'm troubled with though is that you're going through the motions but there's no love there that you're doing all the right things, you're going through all of the right motions, but you've just forsaken your first love with Jesus. And where our love goes, so goes the rest of our life. And so Jesus encouraged this church in Ephesus, don't give up the, the, the patterns and things you're doing, but add to that love. Love should be the driver because if you don't love Jesus, nothing else matters. Love for Jesus is what fuels and sustains the Christian life. Letter number two is written to a a church in a town called Smyrna, the Smyrnans. I don't know if that's what they would call themselves, the Smyrnans, but that's who this letter is written to, and you might ask yourself why the order Really simple, it's just this, if you can go on Google later or if you get bored here in a couple minutes, you can go on Google now if you want to and just type in seven churches or seven letters to the seven churches and it will show you in the ancient world where all of these towns were located and Ephesus was the first town that the mail truck would get to, Smyrna was the second town that the mail truck would get to. And so Smyrna is who's getting this letter and they are an awesome 
awesome church, but they are facing a deep, deep persecution for their faith. And so this letter is written to people who are under so much pressure, more pressure than we could imagine. They are facing obstacles and things that we cannot fathom in our head, and they're staying true to their faith. They could have an easy way out by saying, I'm not gonna follow this, I'm going to compromise, but they have stood firm, and Jesus is going to write them to say, I want you to just continue to be faithful. And so for us, in your life, maybe today, or certainly sometime in the future, you're gonna find yourself facing a crisis. You're gonna find yourself in a challenging set of circumstances. You, you feel overwhelmed. Some of us would say that it just feels like the weight of the world is on my shoulders. You have a friend in the church in Smyrna because that's exactly what they were facing. If that was your story, if it is your story, man, you're going through a divorce or navigating or miscarriage or dealing with sickness or struggling financially or whatever it looks like in your life where it just feels like I'm just getting crushed by the pressures of this world, you could not have picked a better week to be here or watching online. So if you wanna follow along with us today, we're gonna to try to answer the question, what would Jesus say to people like they feel like they're losing heart? That, that if, if I'm going through life and I'm doing the best that I can, and from my perspective, I'm doing all the right things. I mean, I'm, I'm showing up to church, I'm reading the Bible, I, I'm praying, and it feels like from my perspective, I'm doing the right things, but yet there's still so much pressure that I'm facing. What does Jesus say to me? What does Jesus say to you? And so Revelation chapter two, verse number eight is where we're gonna start. If you have it in your Bible, you can follow along. It's gonna be on the screen here as well. I'll make a couple of comments because we read this so quickly, but sometimes we, we forget that there's context of how this is written and words that we don't necessarily understand maybe mean something deeper to the people that are reading this. So verse number eight, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, and we said last week that we're not exactly sure even today what the angel means. Half of the commentators think that the angel was a real, actual angel. Other people think the angel was uh, the pastor of the church. That word angel is, is the word translated messenger. I tend to think because of some other context that it was probably the pastor of this church. He writes that to each of these churches, but I might be totally wrong. But this is how, how it says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Pause right there. Now, we just read that, and we think, hey, that, that's great, but would it interest you to know that Smyrna, on their, on their coins, would write first city of Asia. Smyrna was very proud that they were a wonderful city, and they considered themselves the first city in Asia. And so Jesus, recognizing that, and recognizing that you, you think that you're kind of in front of the line, he wants to remind you, man, man you're, you might be the first city in Asia, but your life is bracketed by me. That I was the one that got this whole thing started, and at the end, I'm gonna be the one that remains. And so you might be the first city in Asia, but I am the first. That I'm the one that got this whole thing started. And if I'm the one that got the thing started, and if I'm gonna be the one that finishes it, you can place your trust, you can place your faith in me. So he goes on and he says this, who is the first and the last who died 
and came back to life again. Now, again, we remember that from the Easter story, that Jesus was crucified, that he rose back to life. That is why we were able to have faith in Jesus. That's why we were able to have a relationship with God because of death and resurrection. But it also meant something deeper to the Smyrnans. Because in about 600 BC, this city was totally and completely destroyed, and 200 years later, it was brought back to life. It was rebuilt, and they had a lot of pride in that, that it was dead, the city, and then it came back to life. And so Jesus is trying to help them understand, you know how, how you were destroyed and how the city was brought back to life? I'm the same way, that my life was destroyed, but I took my life back, and now I'm living again. Verse number nine, I know your afflictions. Remember that word, afflictions. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. We'll come back to that. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, they end each letter the same way. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So he says this, hey, listen, I, I know your affliction. Affliction just means this. Affliction just means weightiness or or pressure, and you've all felt that. Maybe today some of you are, are feeling that. Just the pressure of, of life. Just the weightiness of what's coming down the bike at you. You, you. you see something coming, or you're living through it today. It's just, it's just pressure. It's that feeling where I just feel like I'm holding the weight of the world, and I don't know how to get rid of it. I don't know how to get any, what would you say, any ease from this weight. And Jesus promised that this would happen. Jesus said when he was on this earth, in this world, as you're at work, as you're raising your family, as you're going through challenges, in this world you will have trouble. And in Smyrna, the pressure on Christians was, was potentially greater than any other place in, in the world because Smyrnans were, were violently connected to Rome. They were so loyal to Rome. Rome had helped them to rebuild the city, and they had built uh, temples and statues to Rome. And in order to do business in Smyrna, you had to, for lack of a better word, bow your knee to Rome. They had a phrase that said, Rome first in all things. Rome first in all things. That the priority of your life has to be Rome. The priority of your life has to be you make sure that you take care of Rome. And so you would take this little incense and you would go to the Roman temple and you would sprinkle this incense as a way of saying, my life is dedicated to Rome. And the idea was if you just put Rome first in all things, everything else will fall into place. But the Christians experience this tension because as we follow Jesus, well, he's supposed to be first in all things, but I'm living in this town that says Rome first in all things, and if I don't bow my knee to Rome, then I can't have a business, and I can't trade, but yet I have this faith in Jesus that he said nobody can serve two masters, and so I can't serve Rome and serve Jesus at the same time, and because of that, the Christians were deeply deeply persecuted because they believed what Jesus said, that he is the first and the last. And if Rome is first, that means that Jesus can't be first. And if Jesus did what he said he did, 
I have to put Jesus first. And so there was intense pressure. If I refused to worship Caesar, I, I couldn't find a job. I couldn't run a business. And so that's why Jesus writes, I, I know your affliction. I know that you're poor. And in 2023, isn't it, isn't it true that letting Rome be first is really, really tempting? That it's tempting to, to say, yeah, I mean, not, not Rome, the city of Rome anymore, but for us, we've, we've all got our own Rome. It's easy to say, you know what, I'm going to put me first, or I'm going to put what I feel first, or I'm going to put my political ideology first, or I'm going to put consumerism first, or I'm going to put uh, making a name for myself first, or making money first. And so we have that tension, that there are all these things that vie for I want to be first in your life. There's all of the news and the social media that says this is the thing that's first. This is the thing that you should dedicate your life to. And as Christians, we live in that tension that Jesus said, well, nobody can serve two masters. Nobody can put other things first and Jesus first at the same time. There can only be one number one. And Christians are invited to say, I'm going to die on the hill of Jesus first in all things, but the cost of that is sometimes pressure, and the cost of that is sometimes persecution, and the cost of that is sometimes you get kind of held at an arm's length when you stand on, I'm, I'm not going to go down the track that everybody else goes down. And for these Christians in, in Smyrna, their life would have immediately gotten better if they would have just went up to the temple, got a little bit of incense, and sprinkled it at the altar of Rome, immediately their life would have been better. Immediately jobs would have been open to them. Immediately they would have been able to open their business. Immediately the poor people could have started to move towards not being poor. That's all it would have taken. They just say, I'm, I'm gonna go with the flow. All of this pressure, all of this persecution, the threat of death, the threat of my family being ripped apart, all of it would go away if I would just say, Rome first in all things. If I will just bow to Caesar and then I'll add Jesus in where it fits. I'll add Jesus in where it's convenient and I'll add Jesus in when it doesn't cost me anything, then all of the pressure would go away. But the Smyrnans and this church said, no, I am going to remain faithful. And Jesus says, I, I see it. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know, I know, I know. And we have the same temptation. You have the same temptation, I have the same temptation, to just say, I'm just gonna go with the flow. I, I, I'm just, I don't wanna make any waves, just move along with culture, that whatever feels right is fine, to just pick up my feet and let the river of life and the river of modernity and the river of culture take me wherever it wants me to take me, and I'll just let Jesus be kind of plugged in where it's convenient that it won't cost me anything, it'll be fine, and I'll just kind of win when it doesn't cost me anything, when I don't have to make any hard choices, that's the area I'll fit Jesus in. And that's, that's so tempting for us because sometimes it can alleviate pressure. Sometimes it can alleviate these difficult choices. And so if you find yourself in that place, if you find yourself with the, the weight of the world on your shoulder, the good news is, is that Jesus gives us some things to remember. Now, here's the sermon I would like to preach to you. The sermon I would like to preach to you today is three ways to remove pressure from your life. That would, that would, I would love that sermon. People would share that sermon on Facebook. It would be a great, great sermon. That's not the sermon that I can preach, though. 
Because Jesus provides no immediate relief for the Smyrnans. Jesus provides no, hey, if you'll just do this, this, and this, then everything will be fine and good. Jesus, as we're gonna see, actually promises it's gonna get worse. It's not gonna get better right away. That if you maintain the stand that you are maintaining, your life is not going to improve, it's going to get worse. The pressure is not gonna lighten, it's going to get heavier. And I wish that the, the letter that Jesus wrote to Smyrna was, hey, great job staying true uh, uh, pressure. Here's what you do to remain faithful to me and to remove pressure at the same time. But Jesus said, that's not always possible. Sometimes I'm not going to remove pressure, but I'll show you how you can walk through the pressure and remain faithful. And so here's just a few things from Revelation chapter two that if you feel the weight, if you feel like, man, the world is just resting on my shoulders and I'm struggling through this pressure of, of life, here's a few things of encouragement that Jesus would say to us, to, to you, and certainly to the church in Smyrna. We said the first one last week is Jesus knows and Jesus sees, is that you are not in this life on your own. And there is no challenge that you have faced, and there's no frustration that you have felt, and there's no time where you stood up against the pressure of the world that Jesus didn't see that. And Jesus recognizes that, and when he took a stand for him, and when you stood up to the pressure, and when you were willing to say, Jesus first in all things, when it would have been easier to go with the crowd, would it would have been easier to just pick up your feet and let the current of culture take you wherever it would have wanted to take you, but you planted your feet and said, Jesus first in all things. Jesus knows, and Jesus sees. Those times where you were in so much pain, and there was so much frustration, and there was so much struggle, and you prayed and prayed and prayed, Jesus, please help this, and it didn't feel like anything was being helped. Jesus knows and Jesus sees. That the arrival of problems does not equal the absence of Jesus, and that's so important that you remember. That problems in life are not an argument for or against Jesus' presence in your life. That those two things are not mutually exclusive that the very worst possible things in the New Testament happened to the very best people, is that just because you have struggle and difficulty and problems, that's not an argument that God is not with you. Jesus, the very best possible person, had the worst thing happen to him. Paul, the best person, had the worst thing happen to him. John, the best person, had the worst things happen to him. We see it over and over again. And so Jesus knows and Jesus sees, even when Jesus doesn't remove. And yes, I would love nothing more than just be able to say, hey, if you'll just do X, Y, and Z, and two plus two plus two, then all of the problems that you face will go away, and because you're a Christian, your life is just gonna be smooth and wrinkle-free, and you're not gonna experience any challenges. That is not reality. It wasn't reality for John, it wasn't the reality for Paul, and it's not the reality for you. But what is the reality is that Jesus knows and Jesus sees. Here's the second thing that we need to remember is the battle is spiritual and not personal. That the things that you face and the challenges that you face, our easy response is to point our fingers at a person and say, you are the reason that I have this pressure and you are the reason that I'm facing all of these things. Here's what, here's what the, the, the scripture said. It says that there is going to be the devil that puts some of you in prison. Well, it wasn't 
physically the devil that put them in prison. It was people that did it. But Jesus is helping them to remember there, there's more going on than what you see. That it's people that are actually doing it, but at the bottom of it, if we dig a little bit deeper, it's actually a, a spiritual fight. And we can get, especially in our culture today, we can get so caught up in pointing fingers and fighting people and you're wrong and I'm on this side and you're on this side and we're different and we think different and we see the world differently and so we start pointing fingers at them and they start pointing fingers at us and we have to take a step back and remember, well, the battle isn't personal, it's, it's spiritual. This is what the Apostle Paul said. Well, the, our struggle, your struggle, the what you're facing right now, well, it's not against your boss or the board or the government or whoever it is in your life that's causing you headaches and struggle and challenges. That's not the battle. That's the easiest person to see and it's the easiest thing to point fingers at. But if the Apostle Paul was telling the truth, it's actually against something deeper, things that we can't see. And it's a little bit spooky and it's a little bit strange, but yet our reality kind of speaks to, I, I think there is more going on than what we see. I, I think there is this invisible world that I can't even fully say in words, but yet I just feel that weight and I, I feel that pressure and my temptation is to say it's your fault, but Paul says actually there's something bigger going on. It's against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And so when you feel weight, when you feel pressure, when you are trying to stay true to what God has called you to do, Jesus knows and Jesus sees. And the battle is, at the end of the day, you've got to remember, it, it's not against that person. It, it, you're not fighting her. You're not fighting him. You're not fighting them. There is a spiritual battle taking place. Here's the third thing to remember. You don't have to be afraid. You, you don't have to be afraid. That even when there are things to fear, you don't have to be afraid. It said in verse number 10, do not be afraid. Now, wouldn't that be great if the rest of the verse said, don't be afraid because I'm going to come in and I'm going to take care of all the problems and I'm going to slay all the people that are against you and it's going to be, it's going to be great. That's not how that verse ends. And it, it would be so easy in our life. And some of you experience this maybe more than others, just the way that your, your mind works, just it's so easy to be consumed by fear. Man, I'm just afraid. And the markets are, are, are down. Inflation's going to keep going up. I'm, I'm afraid that we're going to get sucked into a military conflict. I'm, a, I'm afraid that I'm going to be excluded. I'm afraid that my health won't improve. I'm afraid that this relationship is always going to be this way. I'm afraid that my kids will never get it together. I'm just afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. And here's what you need to remember about fear is that fear is always, always, always the beginning of temptation. Fear is always the beginning of temptation because here's what we do. That I'm afraid that this will happen and so I'm going to, I'm, I'm tempted to, to do this thing because I'm afraid back here. Or I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that this won't happen and so I'm tempted to, to kind of shortcut God or to move in the direction that God wouldn't want me to because I'm afraid that this won't happen and so I'm gonna to try to make it happen on my own. Fear is always the beginning of temptation. I'm afraid and so I'll compromise. I'm afraid and so we'll just go with the flow. I'm afraid that this will or this won't and so I'll just move in this direction. But Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, he says to me, he says to you, don't 
be afraid. Well, why, Jesus? Why don't we need to be afraid? Well, you don't have to be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Some, some of you are gonna suffer. Some of you are going to go through something that you wouldn't have picked for yourself, that you wouldn't have wanted. I, I tell you, let me just be honest with you, the devil, spiritual, not personal, will put some of you in prison to test you. Well, that seems like a reason to be afraid. I mean, if I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna go to prison, those seem like reasons to be afraid. Uh, if you would have said instead, don't be afraid because I'm coming in on a white horse and I'm going to solve all your problems and you're gonna be able to have a job and your business is gonna take off and your health is gonna improve and your marriage is gonna get better. Well, that's why I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid because my life is good. Well, Jesus is saying, you can not be afraid and have a difficult life at the same time. That you don't have to be afraid when you're gonna suffer, even if you get put in jail, because, and, and again, when we read this, we have to remember apocryphal literature is different than what we read. So he says this, I'm gonna put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution, again, seems like a reason to be afraid, for 10 days. Now, what we said last week, some of you were here, some of you weren't, is that in apocryphal literature, which is what Revelation is, numbers mean things. So this is not talking about 10 literal days. It's not talking about I've gotta go through this hell week and if I just grit my teeth, then it will. 10 is similar to seven in that it's this number of completion. It's just that you, you might, at the end of the day, go to prison and suffer, but it has an expiration date. That your suffering and your challenges and the weight that you feel will not always be there. Remember what Jesus said at the beginning, I am the first, but not only am I the first, I'm the last. Your life is bracketed by me. And so even if you suffer for a little while, what you live through right now is not the be all, end all. It is not that I'm gonna suffer and just grit my teeth and if I just do good for two weeks then it's gonna be okay. No, it's just that what you face and what you struggle through, that's not gonna have the final word in your life. That's not gonna be the period of your life. That is going to be something that you go through for a little bit but because Jesus is the last, it doesn't have the last say in your life. Jesus does. It's not always going to be like this what you're going through, what you're facing, even if it ends in death, is not the end. Jesus himself said it this way, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. And we would think that these two sentences, man, that, there's tension there. How is it that in this world I'm gonna have trouble and have peace at the same time? Those two, two things seem mutually exclusive. It would seem to me that peace is the result of not having trouble. And having trouble results in not having peace. Not so for Christians. Not so for Christians. Peace is that assurance that at the end of the day, Jesus really is the beginning, he really is the end, he really is the first, he really is the last. And so I can have peace because I have trusted in the one who overcomes the world at the end of the day that it won't always be like this. I can take heart, I can have peace, and I can go through trouble all at the same time because Jesus is the first 
and he is the last. And so Jesus knows and Jesus sees is that the, the battle is, is spiritual, not personal. You don't have to be afraid, but here's what you should be. Be faithful. That's the next thing that we're reminded of. Just as you're walking, just be faithful. Let's look at verse number, number 10 again. He says this, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Even, even if it ends your life, even if it never gets better, even if the weight never gets removed, I want you just to remain faithful, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. In other words, you just keep doing what you know you're supposed to be keep doing. You just keep one foot in front of the other. You just keep saying, I'm going to remain true. I'm gonna put Jesus first in all things. I'm gonna trust God and I'm gonna leave all the consequences to him. I'm gonna trust that even if I suffer now and I wouldn't have picked it and I wouldn't have chosen it, that if he's with me through this and that he's faithful through this, he's gonna bring an end to this. And maybe it's, it's at my death, but I just know that, that this moment in this life, eventually it's, it's over. And so I can remain faithful. I can keep trusting Jesus. And it's faithfulness that allowed this little church to, of all the seven churches, of all the seven churches, it's the one church that today still remains. It's the one church that today still is this faithful little church, and this is a little town called Itzmir, Turkey. You can look it up for yourself. But this little church, through all of the chaos of the world, imagine all the things that they've experienced. Imagine all the change in the world that they've seen. Imagine all the chaos that the world has experienced and gone through. And yet this little church, one foot in front of the other, in the face of trial, in the face of persecution, in the face of struggle, Faithful, 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 and it stood the test of time. You see, we often chase more money and better career and a, a better house and the more, the more, the more, and we think, man, that's the thing that's going to really propel me to the finish line. Well, Jesus reminds this church in Smyrna, and he reminds us that faithfulness, faithfulness, that's the finish line that matters. It's not making more money, and though I'm happy for you to make more money, it's great. But faithfulness is better. It's not raising perfect kids, although wouldn't that be great to have perfect kids? But that's not the be-all, end-all. And so don't spend your life on that. Not having the best job, although I want you to have a great job and a better job and a job that pays you more and a job that gives you more flexibility. I want that for you, but that's not the be-all, end-all. And if you spend your life chasing that, you're gonna get to the finish line and realize this wasn't the right race to be running, it's not going on the best vacations, although I want you to have a great vacation. Go to the beach, go to the mountains, get the cabin, do the thing, but if you spend your life doing that, you're gonna realize at the end of your life, I, I was running the wrong race. Because the kingdom of God is not based on the person that finishes first. The kingdom of God is not the, based on the, the person that finishes with the most money and with the most accolades and the most medals, that's not, it's faithfulness. Faithfulness is the only measuring stick. Jesus told this, this parable that says that, that these people were, were faithful with a little, and Jesus at the end said, well done, good 
and faithful servant. Not, not well done, the one that finished first and the one that got it all right and who came in with no flaws and no bruises and no cuts. Hey, well done those who cross the finish line at a crawl. And well done those who limp across the finish line. And well done those who get across the finish line barely because it's faithfulness. Faithfulness is the finish line that matters and the victor's crown, here's what John said, the victor's crown goes to the one who is faithful. Paul said it this way to Timothy, I fought the good fight, I finished the race and I was just faithful. I kept the faith. And if you and I were on the outside looking in, we would look at Paul's life and we would say Paul is losing. I mean, he was, he was in jail, he was beaten, he was bruised, he was eventually killed. And we would look at Paul's life from the comfort of our life and we would say, Paul is losing, but he was faithful. And we would look at John's life, who was exiled to the island of Patmos, who had watched all of his friends suffer and die. And we would say, John, you, you're losing. And we would look at this little church in Smyrna who is suffering and who is poor and who doesn't know how they're gonna make ends meet and who are being killed and being ripped apart and we would look at them and we would say, you're losing, you're losing. And we would look at Jesus as he walks the path with a cross on his back, blood-soaked skin, unrecognizable. And we would look at him and say, you're losing. That's not what winners look like. Winners, winners look like people that have money and winners look like people that have a bigger house and winners look like people that go on better vacations and have their life buttoned up and winners look like people whose relationships always work and winners look like people who, man, they just know the part and can say the part. That, that's what winning is. But Jesus said, no, it's just faithfulness. Faithfulness is the finish line that matters that we just say, I'm just gonna be faithful to do what the Father has called me to do. I'm gonna set my feet down and I'm just gonna say, yeah, if there's pressure, I wouldn't have wanted that and I'm not inviting it, but if that's what I'm called to, then I'm just gonna do that, trusting that Jesus is the first and he's the last. And so here's the question to wrestle with this morning as you go into your life. What is a faithful next step look in your life today? How can you this week, today, remain faithful? In your relationships, how can you remain faithful? In your marriage, how can you remain faithful? Not, not get to the finish line first, because that's not the finish line that matters. It's just faithfulness. In your finances, as you've got a lot of money, or a little bit of money, or hardly any money, or somewhere in between, how can you remain faithful? in that person that you need to forgive, in that person that did you wrong, that person that has not apologized and probably won't apologize. How can you be faithful? Have you, like so many of us, and certainly like me at different times and seasons, been chasing the wrong finish line? Because those finish lines are so tempting. I, I would love to finish first in money, and finish first in vacation. All oh, those are great finish lines, but they're the wrong finish line. And so what's a faithful next step look like in your life today? Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. And thank you that you remain faithful even when we are faithless. And so Lord, I'm praying for those that are here in the room, watching online, that 
today, this is not a theory, it's reality. That they do feel the pressure of this world. They feel the weight and they just do not see any way out. Lord, I'm praying that as they are tempted to find the escape hatch, as they're tempted to go against what you're saying because it would just immediately make life easier, Lord, I'm praying that they would choose faithfulness instead, that they would choose the hard right over the easy wrong, that they would say, even like the church in Smyrna, I'm gonna remain faithful even if it costs me. And Lord, that's a difficult prayer to pray. And so I'm praying that our anchor would be that you know and that you see, that you are the first and you are the last, that our life is bracketed by you. And help that to be our strength, help that to be our anchor, help that to be the thing that buoys us in the difficulty and challenges that life sometimes brings. It's in your name that we pray, amen.